century, the pendulum had swung fully to the environmental side. In a famous series of studies in the 1940s, psychiatrist Renee Spitz compared two groups of disadvantaged babies. One group was raised in what was then considered a perfectly adequate foundling home, and another group was comprised of infants whose mothers were in prison and who were being reared in a nearby nursery. Although both institutions were superficially similar, both were clean and provided the babies with adequate food, clothing, and medical care. They differed enormously in the amount of nurturing and stimulation each provided. Babies in the prison nursery were fed, nursed, and cared for by their own mothers, who lavished enormous attention and affection on them. These children developed normally, in spite of the institutional setting and the fact that the number of hours of contact with their mothers was limited. Babies in the foundling home, by contrast, had very little stimulation. There was only one nurse for every eight infants, and except for brief feedings and diaper changes, each baby was kept isolated in his or her crib, its sides draped with sheets to prevent the spread of infection. With nothing to look at or play with, and worst of all, a bare minimum of human contact and affection, these babies suffered devastatingly. An enormous number didn't even survive to two years of age. Those who did were physically stunted, highly prone to infection, and severely retarded, both cognitively and emotionally. By three years of age, most couldn't even walk or talk, and in marked contrast to the exuberant nursery-reared children, they were strikingly withdrawn and apathetic. Spitz's work went a long way toward changing adoption policies, eliminating the waiting periods that were at one time thought necessary to allow babies' natural personalities and intellectual talents to unfold, Early adoption is now universally recognized as the best option for orphans and unwanted babies, although the tragic fact is that babies in many parts of the world continue to wither in orphanages, even worse than Spitz described. Spitz showed that early nurturing and stimulation are essential to child development, and he was not alone in this view. At the time, the field of psychology was dominated by the theory of behaviorism, which proposed that all our actions— from the simplest smile to the most sophisticated chess move, are learned through reward and punishment, trial and error interactions with other people and objects in the world. Babies, according to this view, are born as blank slates, without predispositions, and infinitely malleable through parental feedback and tutoring. John Watson, the founder of modern behaviorism, even went so far as to claim, Give me a dozen healthy infants, well-formed and my own specified world to bring them up in and I'll guarantee to take anyone at random and train him to become any kind of specialist I might select. Doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant chief, and yes, even beggar man and thief, regardless of his talents, pensions, abilities, vocations, and race of his ancestors. No doubt Watson overstated his case, but such emphasis on early environment eventually led to the establishment of important social programs, like the welfare safety net and Head Start. If children are so greatly malleable, then the best way to ensure a great society is by improving the environment of its youngest members. These days, things have swung to the opposite extreme. We are now fully entrenched in the era of the gene. Every day, molecular biologists get a little closer to pinpointing which stretch of chromosome is responsible for some dreaded disease or complex behavior. Alcoholism. Alzheimer's disease, breast cancer, dyslexia, sexual orientation. 
The government-sponsored Human Genome Project has made us heady with the potential of decoding the blueprint for every individual, figuring out where each of our strengths and weaknesses lies, what troubles may lie ahead, and eventually, how to cure our genetic ills. These fast-paced discoveries are exciting to be sure, but the renewed emphasis on genes also has its discomforting side. The tendency fostered by books such as The Bell Curve and The Nurture Assumption to say that parents and society make little difference. A child's fate, according to this view, is largely determined by heredity, leaving little we can do to improve matters. As a neuroscientist, it's hard to fully accept this position. Of course, genes are important, but anyone who has ever studied nerve cells can tell you how remarkably plastic they are. The brain itself is literally molded by experience. Every sight, sound, and thought leaves an imprint on specific neural circuits, modifying the way future sights, sounds, and thoughts will be registered. Brain hardware is